morning, everybody. Some of you have heard our speaker speak before because he's given a couple of seminars and lecture, so he won't need an introduction to you. But those who have not met Ramal Gandhi before or Ramchandra Gandhi, um, I hope I can call him a friend of mine. Yes, of course. Um, he is the. Uh, I, um, he must be very bored of me having to say this and everybody having to say it, but his immediate genealogy is of great relevance to this talk because he's the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. And I have to say, Ramu, that most of, us have, most of us have a perception of Mahatma Gandhi which was due to a film being made about him. And for, for all its limitations, it did, it did a lot of good, but it also probably uh, fogged quite a few issues in Mahatma Gandhi's life. Anyway, Ramu himself... I am going to say to you is the most important living philosopher in India. He's not in India at the moment, he's sitting with us now. And I hope you'll excuse me if I call him that, because that's exactly what I believe. I was very fortunate to be at a conference in Delhi with him, and I have never heard anybody perform dialectic in, this, in the highest possible sense that I could define it than uh, Gandhi. He, he may not be performing dialectic on this occasion, but no. he will be introducing, uh, unless somebody asks him some very pointed questions, he will be introducing us to the work and life of Mahatma Gandhi, and I think we should be very grateful that we have him here to do that. Well, thank you, Keith, very much for, for, for this, 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 this introduction. It's impossible to live up to that, <laughs> so I won't try. Okay. Um, I might have to slip out before the end. Yes, yes, of course. Yes, I appreciate it. Um, would you, would you mind if I, if I spoke sitting down? There's going to be a recording of it. We are a small group, and it, it would be so much better if, if we were informal. Thank you, Stephen. Never mind that introduction. It gives me great pleasure to be here. Uh, with, with you and, and, and with the Temenos Academy. It really is rather wonderful that it enjoys this academy and its vision, enjoys the support of uh, His Royal Highness. And this is the sort of thing that should be supported and may it flourish. Uh, Keith and, and, and Kathleen and, and their wonderful team are, uh, are doing their best to, to start something in this country and, and in fact, in, in, in the modern world which is greatly needed. But I realize that my audience this morning uh, uh, are young architects, and I must confess my complete ignorance of the subject of architecture. And, uh, I've, I've worried and thought about it the last few days, and uh, it occurred to me that I might, therefore, talk about architecture. Philosophers <laughs> are, are entitled to talk about precisely what they don't know at all. This is an ancient license. So you'll have to suffer this, this uh, 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 experiment. Now let me draw for you uh, a, a sort of map of, uh, uh, of our world, as it should be. Uh, a sort of architectural map. A, a map of what might be called a home. I imagine architecture has something to do with, uh, with the making of, uh, of homes and not merely of houses and structures, but where we are where and where alone we can be comfortable and truly at home. 
I would imagine that would pass as, uh, as, as one kind of definition of architecture, uh, sort of search for uh, uh, structures and places where we can be at home. And such a place is already there. We, we need to reveal it in our work, I imagine. And what is that world? Now, what I'm about to say will, will, will have points of contact with many traditions, sacred and other. But let me say it. Uh, it it's, it's a map, Keith, which, uh, which I frequently now uh, think of. To, uh, to, to explain uh, uh, not only Gandhi's thought and life, but the thought and life of many saints and sages of the world, and uh, good men and women of all ages and all lands. It helps me enormously uh, to see my existence in the following way, and I would like to share this with you, and I hope it might, uh, the map that I'm about to draw in words, will be of some help to you in your uh, uh, architectural uh, work uh, at its uh, deep levels. I think of a, of a vast circle without a circumference first, which I tend to identify with, with the sky, the vastness of the sky. Oh, by the way, let me, let me say in parenthesis that uh, what I like most about buildings is that they have windows and ventilators. I, I think that's almost essential for architecture. A, a torture chamber or, or a, a tomb can, can be a, a, a structures of great importance. A, a, a tomb is a, is a sacred structure. A tor torture chamber, precisely the opposite. But neither is architecture, I would like to suggest, because they could do without windows. But, but uh, even, the, even a prison cell which has a little window promises some hope of escape for the prisoner, doesn't it? And that is architecture. So I would almost say that windows uh, define architecture. Doors, yes, you get, of course, yes. But windows, especially for those who are in, in a room. When I look at the sky, I, I, I feel that the wonderful thing about architecture is that the, it provides windows which connect the finite with the infinite straight away. So the, the first link is with the infinite, wherever we are. If we are in a home of any kind, uh, a house, uh, whatever, a city, uh, culture has its windows too, which connect us with infinity. The great arts of any culture, the great arts are sacred precisely because they connect us uh, with, uh, with the infinite. But of course, not, not without any loss of the intimacy of a place. A tiny hut could also have a window, and, and, and a culture very small in size could also have these wonderful uh, uh, entries into, into the infinite and the vast. So I think of that first vast circle as uh, there, there isn't a blackboard of some kind here, is there? It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. These things are best imagined, really. A, a, a vast, a vast circle without, uh, without a, a circumference. Now, that, I think, any sense of home, private, public, human, civilizational, cultural, religious, whatever, it must have access to the infinite, to the vast. And we don't have to put a name to it. We don't have to call it religion. But the infinite, that which is the great mystery of, of existence. Everyone has access to this. I was talking to a biologist the other day, and I said, well, I don't know. Perhaps looking at the sky has had evolutionary advantages. It's taught us astronomy and so on. But the eye naturally seeks the, the sky 
and, 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 and a vast space. It's a great mystery. But a child does it, and, and, and all creatures do it, and human beings do it, and all cultures do it. So that vast, let us honor it. I would say that in the architecture of existence, we must first respect this vast space. If anyone who's not been taught, any child who's, been, who's born in a home, and if, they are, if the children are not taught through songs, through words, through language, through funny uh, stories, a, a sense of, uh, of the infinite and the vast, all of these things could later become abstruse theologies and philosophies. But if in the immediate way a sense of the vast isn't taught to a child, even in a slum or in a palace, it's, it's worthless. They're never going to understand the gift of, of that hut or of that palace or of that city or of that age. Our age, I'm, I'm afraid, in some respects, is remarkably without uh, instruction in the infinite. It's, it, you don't get that sense at all, watching television, for instance, or reading newspapers. It, you're immediately drawn to, to utter details of, of despair or pleasure, whatever. But the sense of, I would love there to be one completely blank page in every newspaper, I think. It would be rather wonderful. It might be a waste of money, but it might be a small investment in, in, in understanding the infinite. In any case, it would be without these other horrifying details. But a newspaper is so full of tininess. And I, I, I say this with sadness because I come from a family of newspaper people. So uh, uh, this makes me particularly sad. But where was I? Yes, some sense of the vast. In, in the science and art of homemaking, in the deepest sense. And I, I, I imagine architecture is that. Uh, if there isn't that, that uh, infinite. And Gandhi was greatly concerned with that. He called it truth. He, didn't, he said, he used to say, uh, 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 he used to say, quote, uh, for a long time I said, uh, God is truth. Now I want to say, truth is God, end of quote. And by truth he simply meant that which is, that which is real, and which is manifested in the daily responsibility of speaking the truth, not telling lies. I mean, not necessarily in some profound sense of explaining what, what truth is, although if somebody's inclined to do that, they shouldn't be discouraged from doing that. But of, of not telling a lie. Oh, well, I, I think there's probably room here for a kind of a healthy departure from veracity which you find in India. Sometimes, if you're climbing a mountain in India, uh, and you've lost your way, and you ask somebody who's walking back from there, how far is, is that particular temple? Oh, it's just round the corner. Well, that's not a lie. That, that's a kind of encouragement. I wouldn't want to punish them for, for telling a lie. But, uh, I think it's a way of saying, oh, it's, it's round the corner. And it, it, you'll be there soon enough. So, so that, that kind of a, a playful, a helpful departure from the truth is, 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 I think, to be allowed for. But barring that, I think, the daily lying about simple facts and about bigger facts, about history, about geography, about the potentialities of human beings for good and evil. Uh, we, we tell a lie when we say that uh, it's impossible to be a saint. We tell a lie when we, when we say it's impossible to be, uh, to be the devil. We can be both. Surely human beings are capable of both. That's a lie. Now Gandhi thought that speaking the truth and, 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 and indeed, to try and speak the whole truth, and, and, and so on. It was very important, and this vast, infinite sky was the foundation of, of speaking the truth. That we, we mustn't uh, <coughs> pollute this sky with lying.
Today, if the atmosphere is polluted, if the atmosphere is a wonderful image of this vast uh, space, is it not? It is because of lying. If, if <coughs> industrialization at the expense of the quality of life is happening, it's because a lie has been told that this is in our interest. It's a lie. Basically, it's a lie that's been spread. So, truth is, is that vast circle. And in the great mystics, the great sages, I don't mean here the, the, <clears throat> the proponents of given religious or philosophical systems, but I mean those who, those who have found something which is even deeper than that, which, which cannot be named even, but which is pure, and which, which, is, uh, which is like truth, which is very pure. So that vast circle, and this must be made available to every child, every student of science or the arts or anything every school of architecture or medicine or philosophy. Some sense, a deliberate effort made to, to extend our understanding of truth, of the sacred, beyond what we, uh, what we know from our own culture, including, of course, what we know, but some introduction of, uh, of the knowledge of the sacred and of the infinite from other cultures, and also through the greatest poetry of these traditions which really is beyond all formulations, beyond all theologies. And that is very, very important. So that is the vast circle. In our home, that is the vast outdoors, which we uh, can never exhaust, but which we can see from anywhere, from the humblest construction. Then I would draw a, a smaller circle within this vast circumference. A, a small circle, but very vast indeed. Limitless, if not infinite. This is the circle of nature. Of that which has been called matter, lifeless matter. It isn't real. It has its own life. But all the elements which make up the universe, which are the subject matter of study, of, of science, physical science, but also of spiritual science, nature, within this vast, wider circle of the infinite, a some smaller circle of existence, nature, that which appears not to be living, but it's there, set a foundation there. I see nature not as, not as not living, but as so profoundly modest, in the way in which the materials of, of your work are stones and slabs, that there is a modesty to them, they don't, they, they don't uh, <coughs> compete with us for food in the same way. I see here an, uh, uh, almost uh, a divine humility uh, in this order of reality which is not competing with us for food. Imagine what the state of the world would be like if everything at all, everything were to be fed and supported and clothed. There's a nakedness, there's a wonderful poverty like that of a monk or a nun you find in matter. Now, physics doesn't quite see matter in that way, does it? But I think we could. Surely. And, and, and this is something so so sacred, what we walk on, in, in its undemandingness, in its purity, in its simplicity. But that's, that's the, the, the other field. Utterly sacred, that, that which we can touch, that which we can hear, that which we can smell. Nature. Now, it's a very great uh, poem, in, in the sacred literature of the Hindus, and I will tell you the gist of it. Uh, 
But you will find such way to be old. That which we stand on is seen by this, that, that, uh, this sage, who is the uh, <coughs> transmitter of this poem, as he says, addressing the earth, he, he sees the earth as, a, as, as, um, as, a, as the divine mother, mountain-breasted, he says, the mountains, ocean-clad, it's a rough translation. You are so beautiful, uh, my mother. Forgive me, I have to walk on you. He apologizes for this. On earth. But that is the other side of nature. If we were to see the vast, the outer circle as infinite, as, uh, as limitless, as manifested in theologies but never exhausted by them, if we could see nature as profoundly modest, profoundly humble, sacred, to be honored, would we explore either with the religious fanaticism in relation to the wider circle or that other exploitation of matter which has been going on that the crowd can or the, the, the energies of the more brasa. Basically the springs from the life that is the matter. That it's just there, something which we can do what we like with, forgetting that we walk on it with its permission. The earth the earth doesn't quake all the time. This is it has, of course, occasionally. The, the native uh, peoples of America think that the earth really rests on a turtle, and when the turtle moves, the earth uh, moves. But the turtle is a sacred, uh, sacred being. It, it, it's it's constantly So if we have that map, where, where the circle of nature is the circle of the sacred, of the, of the humble, of the modest, then we would also be humble and modest in relation to it, wouldn't we? So that is the other circle that I would wish to draw. Uh, Steve, can I... Oh, there is some water. Wonderful. I get very thirsty. It's, it's an Indian habit. It's just uh, association. At this time of the year, in, in, in Delhi, one would be drinking water all the time. So I, I tend to do that, even when I'm probably not actually thirsty. So there is that other in our home. In the architecture of our existence, there is that other. And Gandhi was very clear about this too. Like this, this uh, <coughs> transmitter of, of the sacred poem that I've just uh, described to you. He was very clear that we were meant to be in our search for knowledge and control of nature both to be quite modest. There is that you might be shocked by what I'm about to say. I hope you will not be. I find <coughs> philosophers, are, are you, you will forgive me, are meant to be uh, outrageous in their remarks, and I hope I will be suitably outrageous. I, I find uh, that the, the, even the, the, the desire for, for endless knowledge is, is, a, a, is a bad thing. If you love somebody, you don't want to find out everything about them, do you? Uh, if you fall in love with somebody and, uh, and you say, well, now tell me what you were doing uh, on, on Tuesday, 1945. You don't want to ask anything like, you don't love them if, if you ask that kind of question. To extract every last bit of, of mystery and knowledge. Of, you don't do that. So if you love nature, you wouldn't really want to find out all that there is to it. Soon enough, the beloved nature or a man or woman will, will share with you all their secrets at the right time, in the right way. In the right quantity. You must insist on too much too soon. 
It's a simple principle of love. Everybody knows. But when it comes to applying this to nature, we forget it. And we think we have a right to, to, to discover every law of nature and convert that knowledge to te technological use and then to, to military use and then to... and so on. To, to, in the service of hatred. I think it is a big alike. That endless knowledge is our birthright. It is not. No more than endless knowledge of our beloved is our birthright. It is not. So I would say that's also founded on a lie. That endless, the endless exploitation of the energies of nature. No. And Gandhi was very clear about this. That this is not the way to happiness. He was convinced about it. That is his legacy for our world. We must revise, utterly, utterly revise our conception of our home. Of where we can be at home. We cannot be at home where the vast circle is dominated by narrow theologies, competing, warring theologies. But only when the vast circle has room for all theologies and much, much, much more. And we cannot be at home in, in, in a world where the less than the very vast circle of nature is dominated by, by greed, human greed for knowledge and for control. No, we cannot be at home. We are all uh, 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 colonizers of nature. This is ridiculous. All humanity can be that. Imperialists we are in relation to nature. Tyrants we are in relation to the other circle, which is so sensitive, which, 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 which is something that we are meant to learn from. So this vast circle, this, this inner circle, this inner court, the vast court and the inner court, Court is such a beautiful word, courtyard. And there's so, so many beautiful uh, places in the city which bear that name. Then they. So that is our that inner court of nature. We must respect as, as something whose secrets and whose powers will be shared with us, but only when we exercise respect and moderation. We must re revise the ideology of science for that, if necessary. We must ask the physicist to tell us more about, uh, uh, about uh, the physicist sometimes and less about nature. We know very little about Einstein. We know a great deal about uh, nature, which Einstein saw. I wish we knew more about Einstein. Now, Einstein has written about himself, but not as a physicist. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? As a physicist, his curiosity was about something other than himself. I think we are the poorer for that. Science may, may be um, um, richer for that. Right. So, I, I'm still on the subject of architecture eccentrically defined, though it is by me. So you have an, a circle within this circle. Who will tell me what that might be? Who will, with sympathy for your lecture, tell me what predict what I might uh, want to call the, the, the court within this, the, the smaller, the, the still smaller, but quite fast. Surely life, living beings, tiniest microbes, human beings, and all other life uh, in, in, the, in the universe. Now that is something so, so, so distinct. If modesty and, and, and even insentience were the disguises of, uh, of God in nature, in matter, 
could in, in, in animal life and plant life and in, in microbiological life, teeming life, what do we find? I think we, what we find is, 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 is a kind of sport, a kind of energy, a kind of restraint. We find play, it's the playground, absolutely. It is the, it is the giving and the receiving and the taking of life within restraint. I'm told that, that, that it very rarely is the case that non-human living beings, they, they kill beyond the necessity of survival. Of course, their, their hunting uh, for life is, is violent and frenzied, but it has its own beauty. It has its own passion. It's never without restraint. And our uh, ancestral Aboriginal human beings, before they uh, they hunted, before they killed, they prayed to the species uh, uh, that they were going to hunt a member of. They they, they honoured it, and then, then with their permissions. But this is violated. The the, the, uh, the self-restraint of life is sacred, is divine. You might say that this. Uh, this quality of self-restraint is there in, in the vast um, space, nothingness outside too. We could easily be overwhelmed by it. That which is, is only a tiny bit in, in, in that which is not, which is, which is the vast circle. But it permits this. It's, it's, it's restrained. It's like the earth is restrained in its shakings and in its quakings. Life in its devouring of one is, we don't learn from that. Gandhi was very clear about it, that we had to learn from that. And not just think we were lords and masters of these realms. Hmm? Gandhi was very hard on uh, on those who thought they were lords and masters of the sacred realm, the, the 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 custodians of religions. He said, "You are not. No religious tradition is perfect. There is truth in all, but none is perfect. None can claim the right to think that." Uh, they had the final, the complete answers. He also, of course, thought that, that those, were, those who thought there was nothing sacred at all were blind, or even worse. But that's another matter. Likewise, nature and teeming life. And we must reverse, revise the opinion that that's only raw material, uh, uh, food for humanity. It's unworthy of human life. Of, of our exercise in, in homemaking, in that sacred architecture in which all of us are engaged. To think that that's just stored for us. We've inherited this food for us. What a, uh, our divine father and mother can't be like that. It's there for, for us to, to play with. There is a zoo here, yes. But all of life on earth and, and maybe throughout the universe is there, I think, to teach humanity self-restraint. We who have other advantages apparently of thought and reason and so on must learn from this from this innate inherent self-restraint of uh, of passionate life and we, we are not honoring this sometimes I feel that philosophers are also given to wild speculations there's an ancient license that they have to this it's only meant to to, to, to provoke thought not, not not to produce theories immediately but I have a theory. You know, the distinction between a philosopher like myself and a prophet like Martin Luther King is that while he said, I have a dream, I have a dream, I keep saying I have a theory, I have a theory. It's infinitely worse. Huh? But alas, philosophers only have theories. And I find myself saying, I have a theory, I have a theory. All the time. 
I wish I could genuinely one day say, I have a dream, but I have a theory right there. That, that many of these strange diseases, dreadful diseases that have uh, afflicted humanity, are, are there because we really not honored this realm of life. I think there must be subtle messages that, that we know very little about, about the brain and about the, the, our capacity to send subtle messages. We do know, don't we, from our own experience of life, that if you're in a, if you're in a room, if you're in a pub, say, where, we, where there are strangers, each with their own sense of private enjoyment, and if you have hostile thoughts about somebody, they know, they usually know. And you know if they have hostile thoughts about you. And because everybody thinks that this might be the happening, everybody has hostile thoughts about everybody else. In their life. And you can be sure of a fight on Saturday night as a result, wherever you are. But it's, it, that, that's how human beings are. In, in, our, in our relationship to life, we've been, we've been treating life with, with such great contempt that uh, it's organized its own terrorist squad. That's what these viruses might be. Yes, for its own protection and for ours, for our instruction. It's possible. Now, I wish I could translate this into some kind of mathematical formula and become respectable immediately. I can't. This is just a thought. This is just a myth. This is just a theory. But we can, we can believe it to be true. It must be true. I have not yet seen a, a, a wasteful, unecological animal. I have not. No. There may be some. They, they too would probably uh, learn from us. It's quite possible. Who knows if I may uh, uh, produce another theory? What we've been doing to the tiny atom. It might produce an angry response of, of some kind of explosion. It's quite possible. I don't think it's any use saying, oh, Ramson, you're thinking animistic thoughts. We've gone beyond that. I don't think so. I, I, I think it's, uh, it's perfectly possible that, that nature and, and life might be filled with anger in the way in which angry people in a pub are sometimes when they think you're thinking hostile thoughts about them. It's quite possible that the virus today and tomorrow it might be some strange failure of of. of Natural law itself. It might sound crazy today, but who knows? Things might not work in accordance with what we think is natural law because we have not prayed with that young Hindu of thousands of years ago. We have not treated nature with the respect that it deserves. We have not honored uh, uh, the realm of life with the Aboriginal uh, 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 people who uh, learned from, from its self-restraint. Right. Now what might be <coughs> the next circle of our home? Yes? What do you think it might be consistent with this, uh, with this diagram? Human life. Surely. Human life. Human, the human species. <coughs> I mean simply the presence of humanity on earth. Unorganized, but the species. Now this is very important to keep in mind. Clearly this is not enough. If we don't connect our idea of our species with all life and its sacredness, with all nature 
and its humility and with the nothingness which is also God which is also the self and its vastness and infinity we, we don't uh, uh, really achieve any, anything like a, a, a proper uh, uh, respectable definition of ourselves and yet at least this we must have a sense of all of us being a, a, a species of life on this planet not necessarily one culture not necessarily one civilization not even uh, something which is meant to be converted into one culture, one religion, one civilization. That's a great fallacy of our times. To convert all of humanity into some one thing, one kind of society, industrial society or whatever, socialist society or capitalist society or religious society or whatever. No one blueprint for all of humanity. We mustn't think that they, they it's, it's very tempting to think that, that all of humanity is raw material for transformation into one kind of human society. No, I think the human species, the notion of a human species is wider and I think more beautiful than the notion of a society. Would you say so? I find increasingly the thought of the species as such, as, as having a, a more beautiful abstract shape, in a society, a society can after all be described more or less easily. But a species existing as such, without all being uh, herded together into one form, is, 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 is a more abstract pattern which I like. And I wish we could respect that and not impose our, our patterns of, of, of society, our, our ideas of what the ideal society uh, is meant to be like. Gandhi was quite clear about this. No, 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 no uniformity. Of course, you're very clear on fundamental principles. Let there be variety. But we must honor our togetherness as, as the human species. And when we meet somebody, uh, I found this just the other day. I, I was wearing very Indian clothes the other day. I've got some funny stares, but I was very appreciative uh, of looks also. I, I look odd, I look weird, but, but uh, I look all right. I, I, and, uh, uh, yes. My younger brother is very worried. He said, Ram, you look like a gypsy. We, we've got a bag. And they think you're, you're running off with something. I said, but I'm walking very slowly. He said, no, no, but you think you're, you're an expert gypsy. <laughs> very nice. But uh, I remained quite unharmed. And uh, I harmed no one. So, uh, so variety, oddity, eccentricity. It's a great country, this, for honouring eccentrics. In fact, sometimes I think the <coughs> useful way of regarding Gandhi is, a, is, is as a sort of Victorian crank who made it big, really. He, he was here in this city in the 19th century, a student of law, and he was a member of vegetarian societies and anti-vivisection societies. But unlike some of these societies, he didn't only think that the purpose of life, life was to meet on Friday afternoons to discuss these things and to say how bad the rest of the world was. No. But to get out of this, and to apply these ideas to the major problems of existence and society. So he is really uh, an eccentric which, which this city and this country has honoured. Uh, and so I, I'm grateful for that. Uh, <clears throat> so, variety of the human species. We must oppose a, 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 a certain kind of social idealism, really. I'm being heretical. It's no use uh, uh, spending all this money to bring a philosopher from India to here if you don't, don't, don't encourage, encourage him to be heretical. I don't think that all types of social idealism, including Gandhian idealism, must be viewed with a certain amount of healthy skepticism. 
No one formula for everybody, but something to be learned from all of these formulas. So when one system collapses of idealism, we shouldn't be shocked in the way we sometimes pretend that we are. We should welcome these changes. And we mustn't think that some other system is ready to take its place. Marxism has collapsed, so the market economy must go everywhere. I think there are traditional economies that do wonderfully well, that are sustainable. But they can't be imposed on the rest of the world either. There must be a very, very creative, healthy mix of different types of idealism. And all this is possible only if those circles uh, are honored of uh, sacredness everywhere in all societies. Then, of course, within this uh, now narrowing circles, this circle of human species, is what you might call human society. And then again, there must be variety. We mustn't think that. That every human society is meant to be exactly like every other. And thank God that this is not the case. The, the healthy variety of, of human society is to be, to be respected. And within that, human uh, uh, culture, human civilization, traditions, the variety of these things. No one monolithic thing called human civilization. There are civilizations. They're all opposed to barbarisms. Some, some see more clearly one kind of barbarism, another, another kind. All types of barbarism. In India, we, we saw very clearly the barbarism involved in, in treating nature and life badly. But we didn't always see the barbarism involved in treating humanity badly. Other cultures have seen that more clearly. So we need to learn from one another. So a variety of but civilizations as opposed to barbarisms, and they are as various as civilizations. The evil is as uh, as ingenious as as, as as good. There's no doubt about it. It is very various, isn't it? Does make it interesting? It, it makes it even more troublesome, I think, to deal with a variety of different kinds of wickedness. And then, within that, the human state. Now, the state Gandhi had a certain way of relating these things. Each circle had to be a trustee, a guardian. If the human species, this this this, this more abstract shape of of the reality of human life is not a trustee of human society in guardian. If it does not uh, utter warning signals, if individuals everywhere, in other words, don't warn individuals everywhere about the wrongs that occur in their societies. That's what I mean by the human species being a guardian of human societies. It is the right of every human being to take an interest in every human society and to warn against its perils. Gandhi warned Britain of many of the perils that and this was an example of the human species being a guardian, being a trustee, being a custodian of, uh, of human society. Likewise, human societies, <coughs> social living, support rules of humanity, must guide us when received uh, habits are not when cultures and religions are fighting with one another, forgetting and the simple rules of humanity. Then they must be told this can't be done. So they, they, they become trustees. But in, in, in the reverse direction also, <coughs> human societies, cultures, must warn individuals to everywhere. There is a, an aimlessness to individual life everywhere. 
every human community that is warm and intimate and restrained and modest and adventurous and connected with the infinite has at the duty today to wound helpless, endless individuals that this is, this is not the way to happen. No. You must find companionship. Einstein, whom I may have been slightly disrespectful towards a few minutes ago, said something very beautiful to a young man who sought his advice. Einstein, who was very lonely, very helpless, very aimless. Einstein, make friends with a human being. And if you can't do that, make friends with an animal. It's wonderful advice to be right All societies, when, <coughs> when uh, must, must perform this, this duty towards individuals, I think, must receive homes in that sense. Societies, cultures, traditions must, at this time of extreme crisis, for individuals all over the world, there are the homeless one reads in newspapers, but there are the homeless who also have homes. There is a homelessness which of the bad kind. We must remind all individuals. So there is a trusteeship in both directions. Then the state. The state is becoming all powerful now in so many parts of the world. But I think the state uh, is also a trustee. It, it has a duty to protect uh, traditions and individuals, but it must also be protected. We, we, there's a kind of anarchism around these days. Should, oh, let's, let's get rid of the state altogether. It hasn't worked. And it only promotes the state into, into greater tyranny. So there has to be a, a mutual custodianship, a mutual guardianship of, uh, of these uh, circles. But right at the heart of this is what, that uh, surely, is each one of us, the center of, of these various concentric circles. It's each one of us, each individual. But if each individual is the centre of this, and I think this must be told in some kind of textbooks. Every child must be given a map like this with its own place at the centre. Every child. Everyone is at the infinite centre to this. But once we see this, our self-image as people would change. Who are the other in this house that, uh, that God has made, that we have received, that uh, would have? Uh, who, who is the uh, householder? Each individual, each person. But each person that becomes a trustee, a custodian of this entire household, becomes the king and the queen, and the prince and the princess of this entire universe. I think, is it not for something like this? That, that almost every child in India is called a, a prince or a princess, a given name called Raja or Rani, king or a queen, Rajkumar, Rajkumar. Rather wonderful. The notion of uh, of being a prince, a queen, or a king is, is is a wonderful notion. But it is the description of everyone. Why? Because each one of us is at the heart of this home. We have to look after this house. But only and this home will look after us in that way of symbiosis. There's so much for 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 architecture from <laughs> from somebody who has no right to speak on the subject. But if we talk about Gandhi, you might say it's about time too, because your lecture is about Gandhi. Huh? Why do we talk about Gandhi? More directly. Although this is his, believe me, essential teaching, I think. That we must be guardians of of of, of that which is worthwhile in, in one another.
kind of fostering of one another. But Gandhi is very important. He is, that may be more, more, more historical, more particular, about, uh, more, more concrete. I don't really think that Gandhi is one of the, the best friends that this country could have had during the century. There's a very, in, in this context, an interesting contrast between Hitler and Gandhi in relation to, to your, your country, to Britain. Hitler, uh, probably your worst enemy. You really want to destroy this land and its people. Gandhi was opposed to the, uh, the British Empire, but he wanted to help, deeply help the British Empire and the British people and decided, not only because he was studied here and he received education, not only that, but other, I think, the, 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 the saintliness of his heart and the wisdom which comes with saintliness. But uh, a few years ago, I first came to this country many years ago as a student, but when I was revisiting a few years ago, I visited Oxford, I spoke to a friend on the telephone and she said, oh, have you seen the Gandhi mural in, in St. Mary's church, the oldest church in, in the university? I said, Gandhi's mural in the church, it, it didn't exist uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. She said, no, it did exist, but we have installed it there, some of us, and won't you uh, look at it and tell us what you think of it? So I went along and I asked the, um, the, the porter at the uh, gate and he said, oh yes, walk 20 steps down and turn left. You know, in that way which comes so naturally to the British, they have to tell you how to get somewhere without taking you there, you say, which is just as well, I think. Huh? And like some others who actually insist on taking you there and insist on running your life for you. But he directed me. And there it was, this Gandhi mural on, on the ceiling in one corner of the church. He, um, he is in cross-legged position. He said in that Indian style, wearing John Lennon glasses and with his arms raised like that. He looked more like a gargoyle, and I'm sure you're architects, you know, but it's a gargoyle not outside, but inside a church. It's very strange. Gargoyles are meant to ward off evil spirits for church, be temple, mosque, whatever. But gargoyles are needed both outside and inside because there's danger not only from outside, but also from inside, in all society. So it's rather wonderful. The Gandhi is installed, more or less as a gargoyle figure, in, in St. Mary's just inside. Huh? I think it's a brilliant piece of architecture, that, if you ask. There he is. Why is he raising his arms like that? And there are several interpretations. One is this. That he, with one arm, he's sort of voting. Huh? With one arm, he says, well, there is truth in Christianity, say. With the other arm, he says, there is truth outside Christianity also. Now, he, his is the protest against the view that there is no truth in, in a given. But no, I don't think so. I think those are, uh, those are arms raised to, to warn and not to cause us to despair. So why is it that people have honored Gandhi in this country? Some people. I think because some people have seen quite clearly that he was a, a real friend. And who is a real friend? A real friend is somebody who tells me not only that I am right when I am right, but that I'm wrong when I'm wrong. Who's not afraid of losing my pension, but of deepening it. So when Gandhi returned to India from South Africa in 1915, in South Africa, he had struggled against racial prejudice against Indian settlers. But when he came to India and studied 
the, the nature of the British lives there, we find that implicit racism in, in British rule. The whole idea of a democratic people like the British controlling the destinies of another set of races, another set of civilizations, from variety of countries, was immoral. And he had the, uh, the honesty and the, the, the strength of friendship to tell the British that. He was a friend of this country. And he did this uh, for moral reasons. Not merely that, oh, this, it is our right to throw you out because this is our Not only that, but this is not right. This is not worthy of humanity to do this. And he was a friend of, uh, of India too because the social inequity of Indian society, he railed against that as vigorously as he did against Christians. And also religious intolerance. He was a great critic, so he was a friend of, uh, of the religious traditions of India, of Indian people, and of this country. But he became very unpopular with all three. Religious fanaticism killed him. British imperialism imprisoned him. And society cast him out. So. But he was a friend of all three. And I think this service that, that he did to, to Britain is what makes him an ally. Made him, I think, imagine, you, you were born much, much after the Second War, so you don't know. But the fight against Hitler was really fight against racism of the most virulent kind, vicious. And Britain had to do this, had to engage in this fight at this point when she had to do this all alone. I think that the struggle against Britain, which Gandhi had lost, a moral non-violent struggle, must have in some way empowered Britain to do this. Must have strengthened her resolve to, to defeat racism. I think it's a tremendous service that he did. Because surely, in, in, during the, the 40s, when, when Hitler had waged his war, Gandhi had waged his moral, non-violent war against imperialism also, and against religious intolerance and so on. So I, I think it, it, you had two kinds of, if you like, uh, 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 difficult people. You had the difficult person called Hitler, and you had the difficult person called Gandhi. He troubled uh, everyone's conscience, but Hitler threatened everyone's uh, uh, peace and uh, society. So that's Gandhi. Now, if you ask me, what is his contribution to our world? He has left, he died in 48, halfway through the century. What about the rest of the century? Then I'll go back to that map, because those problems remain with us. Indian society has its problems, British society has its problems. The problems of the world today have to do with violation. We are violating these, these circles, these realms of the sacred. Here again, a formula of his helps although we mustn't become idolatrous of any formula. He said virtually, whatever be your truth, and I'm not trying to summarize Gandhi's teaching, I'm trying to say what it all comes down to, what is this real message of Gandhi. I think it comes down to this. His teaching is this, whatever your truth, religious, economic, political, medical, whatever, add non-violence to it and and don't worry what happens to the formulation. If you are a, a capitalist, say, all right, fine. Add non-violence to it. Don't ruin people. Don't cause unemployment. 
don't cause human beings to be so utterly dependent on factories and on machines and on, on, on the human uh, 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 need to multiply wants. Because you're doing violence to them when you do that. When you artificially create unemployment, when you make people forget and lose their traditional skills and crafts, you do violence. <coughs> don't do this and remain a, a capitalist that you want to do. Let capitalism take the risk of doing without Let communism take this risk. Don't create an equal society, but don't violate individual freedom. If, if, you, if you create a, 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 a robots out of human beings, well, that's not equality. If you rob them of religious sensibility, then what happens when, when they become free? They don't know how to handle the question of religious intolerance. They don't know. They're not in school in, in this state. So what's happening in Yugoslavia is part of Russia and, 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 uh, is partly because there is no tradition of handling religious diversity. There's no, com- no dialogue committee. So they are Muslims, we are something else, and, and the war goes on. <coughs> you can't do that. So if you keep all human traditions alive, and be a socialist or a capitalist, if you want to, in your economics, in your social organs, have non-violence. Be a nationalist. We're tired of Indian uh, 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 nationalism by all means. But add non-violence to it. Do not uh, 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 try to set historical uh, uh, wrongs right. If the ancestors of Muslim minorities did something wrong, that is not your, uh, it is not for you to seek revenge for that. Do not try to put historical wrongs like that. You're a new nation. Start from a clean slate. Otherwise, you are being violent. And so on. Religion. If you want to establish an Islamic state somewhere, by all means. But do respect minorities. Those that are not Muslims. If you want to start a Hindu state, a Christian state, a Buddhist state, whatever, an atheist state, respect minorities. Allow their truth to be represented in the overall group. Not as a concession, but as a matter of honor. So that is, I think, the broad teaching of that. Uh, he's for this reason he, he remains difficult to follow it's not easy to, to, to live like him mind you it's not easy and he reduced his wants to such an absurd minimum uh, uh, he, he lived really that poor man he, but why did he do that and he was a celibate uh, so he, he took the vow of celibacy and we can't want to be like that but surely if one man could do this so heroically. Uh, we could all, the rest of us could at least exercise some respect. And the reason there must always be monks and nuns in, in the world is that otherwise nobody would be restrained at all in, in their lives. If there are some who can renounce everything, the rest of us can surely do with a few things less. So I think this is his role. As a, as a violent, if you like, from a non-violent man, as a violent corrective to the greed that was going to overwhelm us. I think he, he, uh, he adopts these lifestyles of extreme self-denial. If he hadn't talked about the village economy in that idealistic, romantic way, there wouldn't even be agriculture today, let alone the village economy. There wouldn't be any, any peasantry today. The industrialization of the world had not really understood the peasant. The, 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 the 
person, the family that creates food for that, that honors that. that, that this is a sacred task always. It, it, it goes back thousands of years. It, it has to be respected, it has to be honored. And Gandhi wanted to live like the peasant because he wanted to. He wanted to correct <coughs> the, the, the bias of modern times against agriculture and, and towards industry merely, which means also then towards war, towards control. That Gandhi also, above all, I think, is, is a teacher of what I would call symbols. There is a symbolism to everything that he did. Let me give you, uh, you, you no doubt you know the story, or, or perhaps you don't. When he came to, to London in 1931, I think, uh, to attend a conference which the uh, uh, British uh, uh, Empire had organized to discuss constitutional reform in India. He was invited to, to a, a tea party by, by, by King George V. And he, of course, wore only, even here he wore only a, a sort of loincloth and a, and, 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 a, and, and, and a sort of cloth over his shoulder. Somebody said, are you wearing enough clothes for the King's party? He said, well, he's wearing enough for both of us. <laughs> so, so, and there is humor there, which, which I think is important. That, uh, that's something that's meant to be shared. There's enough cloth in the world to go round. If everybody wanted to wear the same uh, amount of clothes, nobody would have, any, would have enough clothes to wear. So that's, that's the general message there, that there's enough in the world to go round. But the handspun cloth that you wear, I sometimes wear handspun cloth, not always. He arrives in India wearing, uh, he, he, he ought to be given some kind of posthumous award by uh, some dressmaker. You know, they, he, he wears a kind of, he persuades Indians, his followers, millions of them, to wear a kind of cap, cloth cap. And uh, let me explain the symbolism of that. That is a cap which he saw prisoners wearing in South Africa. So India is a, a, a sort of, uh, Indians are prisoners of, of the British Raj. So he, he makes them wear a prisoner's cap, so to speak, to remind them that they are prisoners and, and fighting for freedom. It's, it's an amazing, uh, amazing symbolism. But not only that, in India, if you, if you wear a cap on your head, then various kinds of things become invisible. It's hard to tell who is from which caste or from which religion. So he's able to create unity where there was none at, at the level of symbolism. And also, that is, you have to cover your head in India if you go to a place of worship. So he makes uh, uh, everyone respect the sacred, and so on. In everything, he's one of the early ecologists. No wasting of things. He wouldn't throw. He was, must have been amongst the first to write letters on the backs of envelopes. I think uh, in, in this century, the things that become fashionable now, he introduced interfaith prayer. What, these things are now fashionable and possible. They were dangerous then. He did dangerous things, saving things, and, and often not with success in, in material terms, but with influence in symbolic terms. That symbolic influence of Gandhi survives. And so uh, I would like to end with reminding you uh, of uh, Gandhi and Charlie Chaplin, both sort of enter uh, the film uh, period of our century, more or less at the same time. And when I see Gandhi documentary films, oh, also Hitler and Mussolini, I've seen all these four kinds of film, documentary and film. 
uh, Hitler and Mussolini march like that in a dangerous way. Huh? It's very comic but very dangerous. But Gandhi and Charlie Chaplin also walk like that in that fast forward way of early films but in, a, in a humorous way. And Charlie Chaplin is wearing those unmanageably huge clothes, you see. He's suggesting that all, all this, this, you know, it, it, it doesn't really fit us, all this, this arrogance of, of, of our identities, of, of our clothes and of our, you know, and of our ego. And Gandhi goes to that other extreme and wears very few clothes. But together, I think, Charlie Chaplin, if Charlie Chaplin is always victorious in the end against all kinds of odds, it's because he has that, that native uh, simplicity of the soul. And Gandhi is a sort of Charlie Chaplin on the stage of history in this century, I think. Imagine scoring those victories and suffering those defeats. But always, I think, with instruction. So uh, I hope you'll be able to see him as a fellow architect of some kind. A little louder. I, I am actually a little. Yes, the, the village hut was very important for him. That people should be able to make their own houses, have materials available there, mud houses, thatched houses. He was very concerned about about the self-sufficiency of uh, architecture in villages. It should not be necessary for villages to to bring costly uh, materials from outside. Uh, mass-produced bricks, for instance, or, or cement, or anything like that. And these, of course, are very practical. There are architects in India now who've discovered low-cost housing and who are building out very, very inexpensive local materials. But they are not yet popular, unfortunately. There, there are lobbies that prevent this. But Gandhi was amongst the first to recommend that uh, building materials be... be, uh, be uh, local building materials be used and traditional building skills be employed. And he, he certainly did. That was the top uh, of his agenda, uh, self-sufficiency in, 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 in building. Yes. And in um, medicine. He was always experimenting with herbs and so on because that really is a cheap uh, system of medicine available locally with local skills and some, some way ecologically more appropriate to sicknesses uh, and education. The, the teaching in uh, in native tongues, but he had the wisdom, I think, not to make a fetish of these things. He tried very hard, and really hasn't succeeded in a big way uh, in persuading. Our, I would love to have seen all government offices in, in in New Delhi to be built out of local materials. This is not the case. Ugly, horrid things, and, and expensively, unnecessarily expensively made, and not beautiful at all. His own hut where he lived, in, in his ashram, in his community, very simply built, looked quite, quite attractive. Built, rebuilt again. Can you think of anything that the British brought to India um, before independence that should actually go? Why not? The, the British brought to India a sense of, of the enormous wrong that Indians had done to themselves. This was a very good thing. And of the importance of uh, of 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 being uh, morally angered about these things, 
But for, uh, for this, there would not have been uh, a man like Gandhi really speaking about so many matters. Because traditional Indian society had rather neglected the question of human equality. This is very tangible. When you live in India, when you uh, say suddenly Gandhi say that this is a blot on Hinduism, untouchability. This is because, because this was... Uh, 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 the British often left, uh, didn't themselves try to improve these things because they wanted to rule the country. But... Uh, if you wanted to be free, if you wanted to rule your own country, you couldn't you couldn't do this without getting rid of some of these uh, horrid uh, things like untouchability and so on, uh, because it, it otherwise it would hardly be, be morally uh, worth it. And it's very important. For, so you must you must understand that when when a society has failed to govern itself. And another civilization, another race moves in. There is a tremendous loss of self-esteem. And the better the, the alien system works, the worse the self-esteem gets. Now, this alien system brings education, brings many opportunities. Now, all these are good things, but this deepens the loss of self-esteem in the people who've lost their, their freedom. And this is really a good... When I said Gandhi was a friend to him, in many respects... I think the relatively benign uh, uh, rule of the British Indian, I said relatively, because it wasn't always benign, did help Indians to look at their own society squarely and try to put things right. But I, I think what, look, in concrete terms, I do really think that uh, the uh, system of modern education, which has many, many imperfections and defects, and the English language, is a very good thing because it brought Indians together. So many of us learned the English language. We were able to communicate with you directly without uh, the need for translators. And this is a tremendous gain. It's brought millions of people uh, within sort of conversation range of others. So that there can be mutual uh, uh, help and, and learning now. But mistakes were made. I think traditional uh, learning was ignored uh, by, by the British government in India, often with the, uh, with the very unfortunate agreement of, uh, of Indian leaders. It, it should have been possible to keep... Now, the average Indian student in college or school has very little idea of what their own tradition has taught. This is sad. But we're allowing for that. I, I think the introduction of modern education and a, a world language like, like English, not to mention uh, uh, democratic uh, forms of government, and not to mention cricket. Uh, no. No, I think there's a list of quite concrete things that were done, but more effective, more important even than any one of these concrete things was the general fact of arousal to, to moral self-questioning about a number of matters. No, the vast... Just before the, the vast country, several principalities, uh, an empire, the Mughal Empire in decay. Wonderful things happening in different parts, but not all coming together. Not, 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 a, not, not a process which was creating one people. I do think history has uh, many, uh, many purposes, and we don't see some of these things until long after an event has taken place. I certainly... Uh, uh, while I feel quite uh, uh, 
opposed to, to many things during the British presence. I, I'm on the whole grateful for it. Yes. Certainly. Do you think the, uh, the Dalai Lama in his snowball approach towards the Chinese uh, occupation of Tibet has in any way follows Gandhian principles? I would have thought so. Whether it's the Dalai Lama, whether it is Martin Luther King, if Gandhi had not lived, surely they, apart from it, they, if their strategies have some kind of special authority today, it's, it's partly because Gandhi lived. If people are willing to listen to them and talk to them, it's partly because of Gandhi. If, if they had been doing it the first time, it would have been much more difficult. Surely. It's hard to know. I think yes. I think he is, in some respects, talking about uh, ecology in a much bigger way than Gandhi did. He did in his own life, but he wants to create a, 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 a zone in Tibet which which is without uh, ecological violation. So that, that's that's new, I think. So that the emphasis is certainly bigger. Yes. And he doesn't even want a separate state. He's happy to have a, a, a relative kind of autonomy. Incidentally, that's what Gandhi had wanted for a long time, dominion status within the Commonwealth. But this wasn't uh, conceded. So the Dalai Lama has uh, similarities, I think, to Gandhi, but I think he has his own uh, novel teachings and approaches. Yes. But he himself uh, was very happy to acknowledge his debt to Gandhi. Some of you travelled in India? Yeah? It really, on, on the question of architecture, I, I do really think that we, we need to evolve. Uh, it's a very great shame that we simply haven't followed uh, uh, the genius of our own traditions or learned. It's a very, very great shame. Oh, hideous. Hideous and really unsuited to, to, to the climate, to the temperament, everything. We, whether it's clothes or clothes, Gandhi was an innovator. I, I think uh, cotton cloth, the enhancement, is, is very practical, very very useful. And similarly, what we wear, what we, how we uh, live, houses we build, the cities we. I think after Gandhi there simply wasn't at all enough figure to give direction. And newly independent nations want to, to be big and want to show off and want that. I think this is a very, very common human tendency to be sort of successor states to, to the retreating power. So big is beautiful and more is important are the doctrines and they're both probably false. Yes. Pardon? Well, I was not a very bright ten-year-old grandson when he was killed. I didn't engage him in... I remember him as being very warm, but not to all children and everyone. And uh, certainly very special and, and very different. He was and was not like an ascetic. He was, of course, he lived a very austere life, but he was not afraid of people. He lived in the midst of people. 
He was a politician who was not corrupt, which is very strange. He was a religious person who was not a bigot, extraordinary thing to be. He was an ascetic who was not afraid of women, very rare. And so on. He, he ate very little, but he had a huge sense of enjoyment of life as a whole. He had a sense of humor. He could laugh at himself. Yes? Do you think that India would be right to live longer? Say that again, please. Do you think India would be right to live today and can live longer? I think the world might, might would be very different. It's a very important question. I appreciate your asking this. If in 1948, when Gandhi was 78, but a vigorous 78, I do remember that as a child. He was a very athletically strong man at 78 because he'd, he'd lived that kind of life. He would have easily had 10 more years of active life. Now, the division of India, very unfortunate. Now, he would have surely uh, uh, healed the bitterness of it, brought the Hindus and the Muslims of the subcontinent together. He had done it before. He would have done it again. But his, his killing at that point was a great blow this tremendous experiment and if that had happened so many other things in 1950 China becomes a republic if Gandhi had met Mao they would have shared Mao was uh, the leader of an Asian country which wanted to experiment with, with a western idea communism but Gandhi was an Asian leader who wanted to experiment with something else together they could have evolved something else he could have traveled he could have come to Britain after the war the, 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 the wounds of the war he would have helped to heal throughout Europe he could have travelled to America after the dropping of the atom bomb he, he would have been a tremendous force for peace and for unity and for creativity I think I don't think everyone would have accepted his teaching but he would have exercised a moderating influence surely and a very great tragedy very great loss if he had been 90 or an unfit or a, a sick and ailing man I wouldn't have said these things or if his creativity had dried up that was not the case <coughs> He was thinking some of his brightest ideas at the time. And all these half-developed ideas on, in, in economics and, and so on, he would have had time to connect with other thinking in other parts of the world. Or I, I think not only India, but Asia and perhaps other parts of the world. Africa, much neglected today. He was, Gandhi was a, a, a started his... A, his political life in, in Africa, in South Africa. And he would surely have wanted to go back to South Africa. And what's happening only now would have probably begun to happen so many years ago, with all kinds of uh, unexpected good effects flowing from that. It's a good, good, uh, good question. And, and a great pity that... Uh, a lot of people ask me, what would Gandhi do if he were alive today? Well, he would be very old for one thing. 125 in October. <coughs> well, thank you very much for, uh, for truly, I, I feel honored uh, that, that, that uh, students of architecture should want to listen to an Indian philosopher on uh, all these matters. But I, I, I hope you will, I wish you uh, great success in, in, uh, in adventurous uh, architecture, really. God bless you.